Thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. Uh, welcome, everyone. It's good to be back in front of you again this evening. It's good to see everyone here. I know some of you returned from last week. You may have even known I was going to be here, so I appreciate that. If you have enough uh, advance notice, you can plan. I remember when I was a teenager, I heard my parents talking one night that my mom wanted to make some blackberry jelly. And so they wanted to pick blackberries the next morning, and there are two things I hated in life, and that was picking okra and picking blackberries, Um, especially the blackberries, because, you know, it was usually during the summer, and it was hot, and it was humid and sticky, and you had to, you know, get scratched up and snakes, but the worst part were the chiggers. So anytime blackberry picking time came, I tried to wiggle my way out of that, and oh my, the chiggers. You know, the Bible says in, in Hades that there'll be fire and brimstone. I think chiggers will be there also, because if you get them, there is lots of weeping and gnashing of teeth, let me tell you. Well, the next morning, I had some time to plan my getaway, so the next morning before the sun came up, I was gone. And that was back before there were cell phones, so they couldn't find me. So I gave it enough time to when I thought they would be finished, and I came home, and sure enough, they were finished. And my dad said, you got out of that one, didn't you? And I said, I sure did. And then he, you guessed it, he sent me to pick okra. So even though if you knew ahead of time, I was going to be here, I appreciate you being here. Last week we began our study of the book of Ruth. And uh, if you would, just to set the context, I'd like to read the first chapter again. We read parts of it last week. I'd like to, uh, we'll be backing up, excuse me, from uh, verse 1 this week. So, uh, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Limelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food to them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you and your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who can become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and they gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, and Orpha kissed her mother goodbye, but Ruth, her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. You go back with her. 
But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I, I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if death even separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. The two women went until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Last week in this study, we saw how, according to our flawed human logic, that Ruth did not appear to be the one who would be chosen to be a direct part of the lineage of the coming of the Messiah. We saw that God has other ideas sometimes, other ideas to use people for his purposes, other ideas for the purposes that far transcend our ability to understand. We can't fathom the wisdom of God, so those that he chooses to do his purposes don't always match what we think would be the right fit. Last week we learned that despite our frailties and our shortcomings and our difficulties and our lack of suitability, in our minds, God has a purpose for us all. The author of this book, the author of Ruth, not real sure who it is. Most believe it's probably Samuel. The cast of characters are placed in historical and a geographical context. Unlike the other historical books of the Old Testament, the main characters here are not important prophets or judges or kings. They're everyday people living everyday lives, average Israelites negotiating their way through the everyday difficulties of life. They have authentic Israelite names, except for the two daughters-in-law, and they have appropriate meanings for their names, given the events of this book. They're not necessarily symbolic names. Elimelech's name, for instance, was often translated, My God is King. That's perfectly suited because this story is truly a story about God's sovereignty. During this period before the kings, this family had been forced to leave because there was famine in the land. And even though it was a temporary move, it was a move in order to make a life elsewhere as others had had to do from time to time. If you read the book of Genesis or you read the book of 1 Kings, there were those who often had to relocate because economic circumstances required them to do so. And this relocation continued for a full decade. And during the time her sons married, but then her husband died and the two sons died. And through a series of unexplained tragedies, Naomi was faced a life of difficulty, faced with a life of difficulty. She was bereaved of her husband and her children. She was past her childbearing bearing years. 
and she found herself in the most desperate and extreme circumstances. The, the life of a widow, even in Israel, was not easy. And having just met Naomi here in the first chapter of this book, it's hard not to feel empathy for her, to feel sorrow for her. And it's revealed quite free, uh, frequently, even in this first chapter, because Naomi not only uh, incurs our empathy, but she holds empathy for others. The word return, or some variation of, of return, translated as go back, or return home, or turn back, depending on your translation, is used 12 times in 17 verses. She's lost every source of security and comfort. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's returning to a life of loneliness and despair. And as much as she's longed for her daughters-in-law to be with her, to take care of her, she realized that that would be asking a big sacrifice of them. You see, marriage was the only real career available for a woman in the ancient time, the ancient culture of the Near East. And that was their only source of stability and security in life. And Moabite women living in Judah would even have even fewer suitors. But if they remained in Moab, their chances for a new life were much better. So even though it wouldn't benefit her, and it would remove her last source of comfort, her daughters-in-law, Naomi took it upon herself to ask them or to tell them to go back to a new life, to stay, to stay in Moab. And if you think about it, we read uh, chapter 1, but verses 6 and verse, verses 22 kind of form bookends for this section. It's kind of a, a, a literary envelope, if you will, for these intervening verses. The section of the story opens with Naomi returning to her homeland with her daughters-in-law. Then midway through this, Orpha obeys her mother-in-law, and she returns to Moab, and she's never mentioned again. Naomi began to think of returning to Bethlehem after her, the death of her two sons, and it's probably she had some time to do some soul-searching and thinking because when a death comes to a family, it ought to help refer, uh, reform anything that is amiss there. It ought to help uh, change anything that uh, needs to be changed because earth is often made bitter to us, but that makes heaven even dearer to us, and Naomi by no means was any different. She seems to be, have been a person of great faith and devotion, she dismissed her daughters-in-law with prayer. It's very proper then, and it's very proper now for friends when they part, to part with prayer and in love. So Naomi and Orpha returned to their respective homes. But in kind of a peculiar way, a kind of a surprising way, Ruth returns to her home by accompanying her mother-in-law to a land that she had never been to before. Loss and grief and, and loneliness that can change a person. 
And no one knew this better than Naomi. Because you see, after moving to a foreign country to escape a famine, she had an emotional famine because she lost her husband and her two sons. Last week we were focused on Ruth. But now we turn to this other character of the story of God and his sovereignty and his redemptive plan, and that is Naomi. Really, the story of Naomi is introduced, the context, if you will, is framed by four simple words. Very short words, but they're posed in the form of a question, and it kind of frames this whole context. And it sets the stage for her return to Bethlehem. Four words, even though it seemed to be a huge misconception on uh, the part of many. But these four words... Can this be Naomi? Verse 19 tells us the whole town was stirred when Naomi returned. It was stirred with excitement. Naomi had come back. And it appears that, uh, just reading the context, it appears that the women of the town exclaiming, Can this be Naomi? Almost like uh, it's almost like we would say if we hadn't seen someone in, in a number of years. Um, let me explain it this way. Have you ever seen someone when they were like a child, maybe when they were five years old, and then you don't see them again until they're 15 years old, and you say, can this be little Johnny? Can this be little Susie? I expect that when Naomi returned, the women of Bethlehem who remembered Naomi before she left were asking themselves, can this really be Naomi? Naomi, which was often translated sweet or pleasant, has reappeared. She's back. She's returned. She's once again one of them. But perhaps they hadn't gotten a good look at Naomi just yet, because I imagine she looked very gaunt and she looked very, very, very sad. And Naomi said, no, you don't understand. I'm not the same Naomi you once knew. I'm not the same Naomi that was here ten years ago. I've changed. Things have changed. Things are different now. All the pain and the grief and the loss and the hardship and the scarcity have changed me. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant. She says, call me Mara. Mara, which is translated bitter. She says, call me bitter because the Almighty, the El Shaddai, God, however your translation reads, has made me bitter. Understand, I don't think she's blaming God, but she's pointing out that she controls nothing. He controls everything. Her life, her very lot in life, is entirely in his hands. But that life has not been very good lately. It's as if Naomi had gone home again and was telling her old friends, the old Naomi you once knew is now gone. She died in Moab. She was once a pleasant, sweet woman living a full life in Bethlehem. But she had left ten years ago. Now she returns as an empty, grieving widow. 
And even her friends and her neighbors don't seem to recognize her, but the moral of the story is God has not forgotten her. God will not forget her, and she's not without hope. God's plan is actually just beginning to unfold. Now, it appears from the context of the book, it appears that Naomi and Elimelech were were well-known. They were prominent, highly respected in Bethlehem. It's also uh, proof that uh, Elimelech, now deceased, was probably well-regarded, well-respected, well-known, because Bethlehem was stirred when she returned. And when the women asked, can this be Naomi? The emphasis is being upon the women were asking can this be Naomi? In all probability, because most of the able-bodied men were in the barley harvest. And that last sentence in verse 22, it seems to be a throwaway. The barley harvest was just beginning. But as we'll see in coming uh, studies, that is a huge part of this story. When they return, God was at work even when they returned because of the timing of, what, of what, uh, or when they returned and what they did when they returned. Early calendars of this time usually were associated with an agricultural cycle. Barley was the first of the cereals to be harvested, usually sometime in April. And wheat was usually the last cereal to be uh, harvested usually sometime in May, and even in later some traditions, barley and wheat harvest came to be identified with the uh, festivals of the Passover and the Pentecost. But the season of harvest was a seri- was a season of celebration. It was a season of rejoicing before the Lord, before God, because God had granted them a crop. God had blessed them with a crop. They would be able to eat and sustain themselves because of the crop. It was a time of celebration and rejoicing. It was a time to remember the poor because of the the abundance that God had blessed them with. Remember the poor. It didn't start that way with Naomi. And the story, uh, the the, uh, narrative in the story is kind of tied to that pattern. The women return home at the barley harvest, the time of God's favor upon his people. And it would eventually actually usher in the the fruitful restoration of Naomi when she would receive her redemption, when she would receive her uh, harvest, if you will. But she's not there yet. And actually looking at the book, of Ruth, only four chapters long, but the skill of the author appears here, even in introducing this fact of the barley harvest, because it's going to set the stage for some very dramatic events, very dramatic developments that will quickly come afterward. But Naomi returns and she says, Don't call me Naomi. I'm not sweet and pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Naomi 
sweet, Mara, bitter, were contrasting names. And that kind of illustrates the disastrous changes that had come upon Naomi, the difficulties she had faced. And most likely, Naomi had in mind a previous episode in Israelite history. Some versions spell the word differently, but significantly, the bitter waters of Mara in Exodus chapter 15, verse, uh, verse 22 and following, the bitter waters of Mara were encountered by Israel. During their wanderings in the desert, and this brings to mind this story of bitter, the waters of Mara, Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention, pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, and I will not bring on you all the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. I am the Lord God who heals you. Some versions, some translations even state in verse 25 that when he, Moses threw the stick into the water, the water became sweet. And here's the contrast between water, Mara, at, at, at Mara, water at Mara was bitter, unfit to drink. But God changes it and makes it fit to drink. He makes the water sweet. And the transformation of Naomi will be one from sweet to bitter, but then back to sweet. Naomi's thoughts of what she believed had happened by her weren't exactly correct. But in that day and age, she had no other, and even in that culture, she had no other way to know upon whom to fasten this responsibility other than to say, God has brought this on me. Just like the water, she had not yet come to realize that God can make the bitter sweet. Regardless of one's life, regardless of one's attitudes, regardless of one's actions, God can make the bitter sweet. She had not learned that great lesson that Christ brought to our earth a time later. Namely, that message that Christians will suffer but we're also at the same time sustained by the promise, the marvelous promise that Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, If we suffer or endure with him, we shall also reign with him. Because you see, in the, in the dramatic events of this book, God's in the process of founding a family through which the children of Israel would eventually bring about the birth of the Holy Messiah, bring about redemption to mankind, to all who would receive him. 
But Naomi could not yet understand that. Her comment was in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord, do not, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. That's the NIV, which is probably not the best translation. Actually, the King James is probably the best translation where it says, Jehovah hath testified against me. The Lord has afflicted me is a change in the text that the translators use that actually changes the construction and alters the form of the verb. Naomi doesn't credit her misfortune to, to fame, or, or I should say fate, or chance, or being in the position that she is. She's convinced that God, the Almighty, El Shaddai, she's convinced that God is overall, and she even uses the rare, a rare Hebrew word here for him that emphasizes his irresistible strength. Afflicted, that many translators used, is just merely a human change in the wording here. That's what they think it should have said. But affliction and testify are not the same thing. Affliction is an out-and-out punishment in the Old Testament context. You know, God afflicted with a plague, God afflicted with sores, God afflicted with painful boils, etc., etc. Affliction is the state of being affected by something that causes physical pain or extreme unhappiness or both. Testify means to bear witness It means to give evidence. In this instance, Naomi states that God has testified against me, and I'm bearing witness. Here's the evidence. I went away full, but now I've returned empty. I left as a wife and a mother. I've returned as a widow and childless. What other evidence do you need to regard me as bitter or Mara? So upon her return, Naomi was probably hardly recognizable due to her years of hardship. And she instructed the women, again, presumably the men were working in the harvest. She instructed them to stop calling her pleasant, but her new name would be bitter. Drastically contrasting her previous life with her present circumstances. So this section, this, this section of verses 6 through 22, kind of bookended by Naomi returning. And then it sets the context for the rest of the story, which will be a huge part of this redemption story. She returns from Moab, and she's fully aware of her circumstances. She's fully aware of what she faces. And she says, I am now empty. But she, she was accompanied by Ruth. 
Ruth the Moabite. Not just any Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. It's crucial to remember, especially as we get in, in, in further into the story, that Ruth is a foreigner. And the things that she does and will do, a foreigner is not supposed to do. The things that will happen to Ruth and the things that God will accomplish through her are not supposed to happen. Ruth is regarded, should be remembered as a foreigner. And again, as we saw last week, we remember Ruth's ancestor, Lot's daughter. Lot's daughter who had a child with her father, Lot, named Moab. In both cases, the problem then, the problem now, is childlessness or the lack of a male heir. But as we get into this story of why the author mentions the barley harvest and why is it important that he mentions that Ruth, the Moabite who's a foreigner, why is that important? Well, we'll, we'll see that next week when we see God at work. But look at the transformations of Naomi. Naomi was prominent. We believe from the the context of of chapter 1 that both Naomi and Elimelech were prominent. They were people of good standing. They were known in the community. Naomi was a wife, a mother. She was pleasant. But she became... Can this be Naomi? Doesn't seem like the same Naomi that we once knew. It doesn't seem like the same Naomi that once lived here. She was a wife and mother, but she was transformed into someone who was a widow and she was childless. And she was once pleasant, and now she's bitter. So, if you were writing a story and, and, and you were a Hollywood writer, what would you do here? Would you just end the story? And would it be a tragedy that, that the, the story would end with Naomi having lost everything? Or would you write an ending to the story, a good ending to the story? Well, as we, as we saw last week, uh, that doesn't matter because God is the one who constru- constructed this story. God had a plan for this all along. As we get into chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? 
The overseer replied, She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So a man of standing, a mighty man of wealth named Boaz, comes into the story. And actually, the the Hebrew words from this are rendered or translated as a mighty man of valor. The same word was actually used in Judges uh, chapter 11 to to refer to Jephthah as a mighty warrior. Really, it means someone who was just a great guy. Probably the best way to put it. The meaning assigned to Boaz was strength. Strength or fleetness, and if you look in the in the uh, the record of the building of the temple, his name is assigned to the north or to the left uh, pillar in the temple that Solomon built. You can read about that in First Kings uh, chapter seven, I believe. In other words, in complete contrast to Naomi, who said, "My name is now Mara or Bitter." A man of standing, of strong, noble character has arrived. The virtues that are exhibited frequently in this chapter. He's from the family of Elimelech. In the Jewish tradition, many historians believe that Boaz was Elimelech's nephew. So Ruth says, let me go and let me glean. As the younger and the stronger of the two women, Ruth decided to take advantage of the harvest season to go glean some of the ears of barley because they didn't have any, probably didn't have any food. They returned without anything. And just by the act of going and gleaning indicates that they were essentially destitute. So they go, uh, Ruth goes to glean some barley to supply food for her and Naomi. Now the law of Moses laid down strict rules in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy about uh, protecting the right of the poor to glean in the fields following the reapers. You couldn't uh, reap the fields to the very borders. Landowners were forbidden to do that. They couldn't send out reapers a second time through the field. Oh, we missed some couldn't go back a second time and if they overlooked a bundle of grain they couldn't go back and get it that was left for the poor and the foreigners same rules applied to vineyards and orchards the purpose of this was to allow the poor and the very needy an opportunity an opportunity to obtain some provisions for themselves that's the legal background for Ruth's gleaning. So Ruth asks permission. She says, let me go. It was a dangerous thing for a woman to go by herself into the fields. Next week we'll get into it, but we'll see where Boaz basically tells the workers, don't lay a hand on her. And he says, stay in my field. Things like that indicate that this was a dangerous place for a woman to be. She requested permission of her mother-in-law. She also asked permission 
for the overseer of the harvest workers. She was keenly aware of her status as a foreigner. He could have said no, that she could have been forbidden to glean in her status. However, her reputation of what she had done by accompanying her, daughter, her uh, mother-in-law back was probably what caused her to be welcomed among the gleaners. And notice Naomi's reaction. Go ahead, my daughter. Now, the author doesn't give us any context in how that phrase is stated. And in going through this, I thought, I wonder the emotion behind that statement. It could have just been nonchalant. Sure, go right ahead. You have my blessing. Pick up some milk while you're out, if you don't mind. Or it could have been more of a parent-child interaction. Go ahead, my daughter, but you be careful. Mind your manners. Don't dilly-dally around. Or, I believe, given the context in Naomi's own self-description, calling me bitter, I could envision Naomi lowering her head in embarrassment and shame of the situation. Go ahead, my daughter. Thinking I wish I could offer you a better life. Here we are, widows, having to rely on the leftovers of a field being harvested. In my reading of it, you can almost see the sadness and the despair and the discouragement in that statement, go ahead, my daughter. The author of the book not yet has given us a suggestion that Ruth, Ruth may actually provide the answer to Naomi's plight. However, chapter 1 prepares us for the next chapter of the story by relating that it is the bar- time for the barley harvest. Naomi and Ruth had come to Bethlehem at just the right time and often struggle and difficulty will make changes in a person's life in a very little time and God can bring about change in any person's life and he can use any situation to to carry out his purposes so Naomi transforms from pleasant or, or amiable to Mara or bitter and bitterness. She was now a woman with a sorrowful spirit, and she had come home empty and poor and childless and as a widow. But there is a fullness for believers that can never be emptied. There is a fullness of those who know God is sovereign that that can never be emptied. The cup of pain can be a very bitter cup, but she owns that it comes from God, meaning she knows that God is in control. It becomes her to have her heart humbled and to be under humbling circumstances. It's not difficulty in and of itself, but is the difficulty that is rightly endured. That's what does us good. Well, Naomi 
is beginning her recovery and her redemption. Naomi will find out that sometimes we travel through life's darkest times, through life's deepest valleys, and when doing so, we understand that God is with us. It was, after all, Naomi's great, great, great grandson who wrote, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those words from King David in the 23rd Psalm. I just wonder if he knew of his great, great, great grandmother's plight when he wrote those words. You see, in chapter 4, verse 15, towards the end of this redemption story, says, Your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons and has, been, has given birth. That, re, that birth began our redemption also. How? Why? Well, next week we'll look at God at work in us, and we'll look how God not only redeemed this situation, not only redeemed Naomi, but he began the plan to redeem us as well. So next week, we'll see how God, who is always at work, is at work in this situation and is at work in us. As we stand and we sing this song, if you have not had a chance to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's still prepared for you in room 100. Or if you need anything that we can help with, please let us know as we sing. Please stand.